The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that the things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we are engaged in a continuing study of the history of the Anglican tradition, and today we are going to pick up um, on January 28, 1547. We're going to pick up with the arrival of King Edward VI to the throne of England. We said that Henry VIII had made his break with Rome. Uh, he had originally broken with Rome, seeking an annulment uh, in his first marriage from Catherine of Aragon. He made that split, but during Henry's reign, even though Henry broke with Rome and declared himself to be the supreme head of the church in England, for the most part, uh, religion in England, the church in England, remained Roman Catholic in everything but name only. Uh, the Mass was still said in Latin. Priests were still expected to be celibate. Transubstantiation was still the doctrine that was applied to the idea of the Eucharist. So for the most part, everything remained the same. Henry had not been sympathetic to the Protestant Reformation, which was at that point taking place on the continent. He was not. In fact, we pointed out that he had actually written a number of pamphlets against some of the doctrines that were being taught by Martin Luther and others. So he was not necessarily sympathetic to the Reformation. Now, what is significant is that there were a number of people in his court who had seen in his marital difficulties an opportunity. We're going to come to one of them in just a minute. And they were interested in the Protestant Reformation. But they knew so long as Henry was sitting on the throne, there was really nothing that they could do. And so very little activity as far as the Reformation in earnest took place during Henry's time. But on January 28, 1547, Henry died. At long last, he died. And when he died his only male heir ascended the throne. This was his son by way of his wife, his third wife, Jane Seymour. This was his only male heir. Now, he had other children. We've already talked about them. He had one child with Catherine of Aragon, Mary. We're going to talk more about her in just a moment. He had a daughter by his wife, Anne Boleyn, and that would be Elizabeth I, and we'll talk a great deal about her as well. But he only had one male heir, and that is going to be Edward VI by his third wife, Jane Seymour. We said that she did not survive the difficulties of the childbirth, and she died shortly thereafter. Edward came to the throne um, when he was nine years old. Nine years old. Now, it's pretty obvious that when you come to the throne at the age of nine, you are incapable of reigning over a kingdom like England with all of the political wrangling that had taken place during his father's time. And so the only way that the king could actually rule is that if he had a whole set of counselors around him who would advise him on religious, political, and military matters. And that's exactly what he had. And they would advise him during his brief time on the throne. He would die at the age of 15, probably from what is today considered to be tuberculosis. So he had a relatively brief time on the scene, Edward VI, 
who followed Henry VIII. But as a young child, as I said, he could not rule in his own right. He had to have advisors. And one of the most important advisors that he had was the man that you see on the right side of the screen, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Now, Thomas Cranmer replaced William Wareham, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, Wareham had been an advisor to King Henry VII, a trusted advisor. But when Henry died, um, Wareham was sort of shoved to the side by Henry VIII. Henry VIII decided that his principal counselor was going to be a man by the name of Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, uh, until Wolsey fell out of favor. Wareham would have been a much better advisor for Henry VIII, but nevertheless, um, he was not. Wareham would die, however, and when he died, he would be replaced by Thomas Cranmer. Now, as I said last week, Cranmer saw in the king's marital difficulties a great opportunity. He was, the king didn't know it, but he was a closet Protestant. He had been corresponding for some time with a number of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, Martin Bootser, Philip Melanchthon, and in more recent years, he had been corresponding heavily with a man by the name of John Calvin. And he was committed to the Protestant cause. But again, he knew that Henry ruled with an iron fist. He knew that Henry was not sympathetic to the Reformation, and so he pretty much kept his cards close to his vest. But when the king began to have marital difficulties and wanted to break from Rome, Cranmer saw this as a great opportunity. And he would encourage the king along these lines. He was the one who encouraged the king to seek not the approval of the magisterium of the church in seeking an annulment, but rather the academy. Well, Thomas Cranmer is still around when Henry dies. And he's going to become one of the principal advisors to the young king, Edward the sixth. But now he sees in Edward an even greater opportunity than he had seen with the break with Rome. Here is an opportunity to turn the English church into a truly reformed body. He sees this young king as an Old Testament figure. In fact, on the day of the king's coronation, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, delivered the sermon. And he described Edward VI as the Old Testament King Josiah. Now, if you remember the Old Testament from the second book of Kings and from Chronicles, you'll recall that Josiah was the king of Judah at a time when there was great corruption in the land, and they uncovered, as they were doing a renovation of the temple, the book of the law. And when Josiah read the book of the law and realized how far afield of the teachings of God the people had actually wandered, well, we're told that he rent his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he called the people to repentance, and a great period of reform took place in Judah. This young king, Josiah. Well, that is exactly what Thomas Cranmer saw in Edward VI when he ascended the throne. The opportunity for this young king to bring great reform to the church in England. And that's exactly what happened. The Reformation took off in a major way during the reign of Edward VI at the instigation of Thomas Cranmer and others. In 1549, the first book of common prayer was published. For the first time, the people of England were hearing the liturgy in their own language. During the reign of Henry VIII, even though they had broken from Rome, the liturgy was still in Latin. Now, most people in England at that time couldn't even read or write. Do you think they could understand Latin? Not at all. They only understood snippets. But for the first time in 1549, they were hearing the liturgy 
in their own tongue. That was revolutionary. Now, it needs to be understood that in 1549, it was the liturgy that was, for the most part, Roman Catholic theology, just in the language of the people. That would have been revolutionary enough, but it was pretty much Roman Catholic theology. For example, when the priest administered communion, the words of administration were these, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. You didn't get the blood. But when the words of institution were said, and when the words of administration were given to other priests, it was these. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. That implies that this is what? This is the literal, physical body of Christ, which is exactly what the medieval mass taught. That every time the priest raised the host, bells would be rung, and the bread and the wine were actually, literally, transformed into the flesh and blood of Christ under the guise of bread and wine. This is one of the reasons why during the medieval period nobody was permitted except for the celebrant to take the wine. You could receive the bread because if you dropped the bread you could pick it up and eat it again. But if you spilled a chalice of wine, the precious blood of Christ was gone forever. Now even during the medieval period because people believed that this really was the flesh and blood of Christ, oftentimes you'd receive the wafer Initially, you received it in your hand, but people were taking it home as a talisman. And so from that point forward, you had to receive it on your tongue so that the priest knew that you were actually consuming it and not taking it home with you. So there was a great deal of superstition associated with the Eucharist during this medieval period. So it was the Mass in English. A few minor changes in the 1549 prayer book, but it was still, for the most part, predominantly Roman Catholic theology. But Cranmer's inspired by Edward VI and the, the freedom that he has in advising the young king. In 1552, they come out with the second book of common prayer, and it is radically different from the first. It's not only in English, but all of a sudden you begin to see a great purge taking place in terms of Roman Catholic doctrine. This is going to be a very Protestant book. For the first time, people are going to get communion in both kinds. You're going to get the bread, and you're going to get the wine. Furthermore, you're going to discover that the words of administration change. No longer does the priest say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for thee. Instead, he's going to say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee. So, implying that this is not the flesh and blood of Christ, this is something that we take, what? In remembrance. And we feed on Him by faith with thanksgiving. So that's the idea. This is a radical change for the people. They're receiving communion in both kinds. It is clear that it is a memorial view. At least that's the language of the prayer book. It is a memorial Real bread is going to be consumed instead of wafers. No longer will you refer to that table at the front of the church as the altar. Why not an altar? Because an altar is a place where a sacrifice takes place. And the Protestant reformers believed that Christ's sacrifice was, sound, tell me if these words sound familiar to you, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Once offered. When? Where? On Calvary. Around the year 33 A.D. 
In other words, the reformers are making it very clear when the priest celebrates Holy Communion, the only sacrifice that is being offered is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, not an actual sacrifice. You see, these are radical changes for people who've been brought up in medieval Catholicism. Ritual gestures are forbidden. No more genuflecting. No more tapping of the breast. No more crossing of yourself. All of those things are forbidden in the church because they're regarded as superstitious practices. They are forbidden. Prayers for the dead are eliminated along with all references to purgatory. Remember what that John Tetzel, that Dominican monk, had said, for every coin and coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. No more. No more references for prayers to the dead. By the way, how many of you are big fans of the 1928 prayer book? I see a few of you out there. Ah, the diehards, the 1928 prayer book, the prayer book that God actually wrote. You need to understand that the 1928 prayer book was a radical prayer book. It was a radical prayer book. And you know why it was a radical prayer book? It was the first English prayer book since 1662 to have prayers for the dead in it. All of those things have been eliminated. They didn't come back until 1928. So if you really want to be loyal to the Anglican tradition, you're going to have to go back before 1928, folks. I'm sorry. So all prayers for the dead, all references to purgatory are gone. Eucharistic vestments are eliminated. Those beautiful brocade vestments that we wear on Sunday, the chasubles, are forbidden because they imply a certain type of Eucharistic theology, the sacrifice of the Mass. So they're gone. Now, I know some of you are looking and saying, well, why are they back? We'll get to that. <laughs> but at this point, they're gone. Members of the clergy up to this point, even after the break with Rome, during the reign of Henry VIII, were not permitted to marry. They were expected to remain celibate. After 1552, guess what? They are allowed to marry. Thomas Cranmer took a wife as the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Bible is declared to have a place of primacy in all matters of authority. Now, I want to emphasize that word primacy because we're going to come back to it. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. You'll recall that on the continent, the other reformers had talked about solas. The five solas, remember those? That we are saved Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. In Christ alone. Sola Christus, to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. And the scriptures were, Sola Scriptura, the ultimate authority. The only authority for the life of the church. The English reformers are going to declare the Bible to have a place of primacy in all matters of authority. So the Bible is the top authority, not the Pope, not the College of Cardinals, not the Archbishop of Canterbury, and not even the King. The Bible has a place of primacy. The black rubric was added. We talked briefly about that last week. We said the black rubric was that little instruction in the prayer book, in the liturgy that stated that when we kneel to receive Holy Communion, we are not worshiping or adoring the elements. We're simply coming in the posture of a beggar to the Lord's table. 
That's why we say those wonderful words, prayer of humble access. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. The words of administration, we talked about this, are changed. And prayers for the Pope are admitted, but prayers against the Pope are added. (laughs) So this is radical. As I said, the Mass, as most people had seen it and had experienced it, is going to change significantly during the reign of young King Edward VI at the instigation, as I said, of Thomas Cranmer. Now, this meant that Reformation had come to England. The Reformation that had been taking place in Germany, in Switzerland, in France, had finally made its way across the English Channel to the English realm. But you need to understand, this is very significant for how Anglicanism would develop. The Reformation, while it came to England, was slightly different in England than it was on the continent. And when I say slightly different, what I mean is it was somewhat tempered. What started off as a reform movement when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral turned into a revolution. Started out as a reformation to reform the church and it turned into a revolution. It's going to be a little different over in England. So, less revolution. Part of that was due to the fact that England was separated from the continent. Now, we pointed out before that the English Channel is not a serious obstacle today. But in those days, it was like a moat around England, protecting her, shielding her from invasion, but also keeping her separated from many of the ideas that were taking place on the continent. This is one of the reasons why Henry VII and Henry VIII had enjoyed a certain degree of autonomy separated from the rest of Europe. They were able to do their things because news traveled so slowly in those days. So distance is going to help. Now, how was the Reformation in England different from the Reformation on the continent? Well, first of all, in England, it was a clergy-led movement. Now, we all know that Martin Luther had been an Augustinian monk. He was a member of the clergy. He was a priest. That is true. But for the most part, The Reformation on the continent was a lay-led organization. It was funded by the German princes who did not like the heavy hand of the church. And so they were the ones that were really fueling the Reformation on the continent. It was a lay-led organization. Yes, the reformers were all clergy and scholars and so forth, but the people who were bankrolling it, they were laity. That's different in England. In England, the people who are really pushing the Reformation are people like Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the people who had been Protestants but had remained in the closet about it because they didn't want the king to find out. But now they're the ones that are advising the new king. They're the ones that are pushing for this. So it is going to be a clergy-led movement, which tells us that it is a little more informed than what eventually happened on the continent. So it's a clergy-led movement. In England, they agreed on all of the great solas, that we are saved by grace alone, not by anything that we do. This is received by the conduit of faith alone. It must be in Christ alone. In other words, not in the saints, 
but in Christ alone. And this is for the glory of God alone. They also believed in the authority of the Bible, but they tempered it. In England, they did not say sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for the life of the church. Instead, they said Scripture is the primary authority for the life of the church. Now, why did they waffle on that? Well, they weren't in any way trying to undermine the integrity of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible or the authority of the Bible. They were simply acknowledging something that had been forgotten on the continent. And that is that there are some things in the life of the church to which the Bible does not speak. What? Well, for example, what should clergy wear? Vestments. Should they wear vestments? Well, the Baptists might disagree with you on that one right there. Should they wear robes? Should they not wear robes? If they wear robes, what robes should they wear? Well, you can search all the pages of Scripture and you're not going to find out anything about what the clergy should wear necessarily. And so what the English reformer said, that on those issues that the Scripture addresses, it is the final authority, period. On matters of doctrine, for example, the Bible is the ultimate authority, not the church, not the pope, not the sovereign. But on those issues, the church is struggling with that the Bible does not address like clothing and priestly celibacy and those kinds of things, well, then you have to turn to other authorities. If the Bible does address those issues, the Bible has ultimate authority. But you can see it's just somewhat tempered. It's a little bit different than what's taking place on the continent. Something else that happens in England that's different. They maintain the threefold order of ministry. On the continent, they got rid of bishops. That's why Presbyterians don't have bishops. They got rid of priests. Everybody becomes a clergyman, a minister. There are two orders, ministers and laity. That's it. But in England, they kept bishops. They kept the hierarchy. They kept the bishops. They kept the priests. They kept deacons. Now, those are all ordained orders and the laity. And the reason for that is, when they looked at the ancient church, when they studied the scriptures, they found all three orders of ministry there in the scriptures. The word bishop is in the Bible. It's the Greek word episkopos. That's why we get the word episcopal. It means overseer. The word priest, the English translation of the word priest, is in the Bible. It's presbyteros. Or the word we get the term Presbyterian or presbyter. The word deacon is in the Bible, diakonos. So these are orders that, yes, it's true, had become corrupted during the medieval church, giving these people tremendous power and influence, but they were biblical. And so while on the continent they got rid of anything that smacked of Catholicism, anything at all that had the vestige of Catholicism attached to it or the medieval church, it had to go. In England, they said, well, if it's corrupt, let's reform it. If it's absolutely corrupt, we'll get rid of it. But if it's not, if it's a good thing, it's just gone bad, let's see if we can't somehow rectify the situation. And so they maintained the threefold order of ministry. That's why we still have, in the Anglican tradition, bishops, 
We're about to elect a new one. Priests, deacons, and we have laity. So, the Reformation, a little bit different here. The authority of the sovereign is declared. The sovereign, during the time of Henry VIII, is the supreme head of the Church of England. We're going to see that not during the reign of Edward VI, but during the reign of Elizabeth I, that title is going to be changed. And the sovereign will cease to be the supreme head of the church and become the supreme governor of the Church of England. Why not the supreme head? Because the reformers knew that there was only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. But the sovereign, by divine right of kings, has the responsibility of governing the church and ensuring the church's prosperity. So all of that happens. Those are sweeping, dramatic changes taking place in England during the brief reign of Edward VI. But as I said, he's a young boy when he assumes the throne, nine years old. He's only going to live to 15. He's going to be sickly for the greater part of his time as king during his reign. And he will eventually die, as you can see, in 1553 of tuberculosis. Now, in those days, death to the young was commonplace. Thomas Cranmer knows that the king is not healthy. He's not robust. He's worried about this. Because if Edward dies, who comes to the throne? The eldest child of Henry VIII. And the eldest child of Henry VIII was his daughter by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, Mary Tudor. Now, Henry had tried to sort of fend this off. When he had the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, and the Academy declare his marriage to Catherine of Aragon null and void. What that basically means is that a marriage never took place. That's what an annulment means. In the eyes of the church, at least, a marriage never took place. It's not that there was a marriage and the marriage broke apart and they were divorced. No. What an annulment says is there never was a marriage. Now, of course, this becomes a bit of a fiction because they had a child. And if no marriage took place, what does that make the child? Illegitimate. And that is exactly what Henry declared his own daughter Mary to be. Illegitimate. In other words, she could not ascend the throne. Now, while Henry did that, most of the people didn't buy it. Most of the people didn't buy it. The laws of accession were very clear. The eldest child of the sovereign would succeed. The eldest male child. If there was no male child, then the eldest child would succeed. So that was pretty much clear. But when Edward's getting sick, Thomas Cranmer realizes there's going to be a problem. Because if Mary ascends the throne, Mary, first of all, is bitter about what had happened to her mother. She's also a devout Roman Catholic. She is going to bring Catholicism back to England. And all of these reform movements, all these reforms that have been taking place during the reign of her half-brother, they're going to go to the wayside. So shortly before he dies, Thomas Cranmer persuades young Edward VI to sign a document skipping over Mary 
as his heir. And replacing her with his first cousin once removed. The granddaughter of King Henry VII. In other words, Henry VIII's sister's child. And her name is Lady Jane Grey. So Edward VI dies. Lady Jane Grey is declared by Thomas Cranmer and others to be the new queen. Why Lady Jane Grey? She's a Protestant. She's a Protestant. She will have a very brief reign. She is known as the queen of nine days. She'll be declared queen of England by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Privy Council, and a number of other advisors. She's the granddaughter, as I said, of Henry VII by his youngest daughter, Mary. She is the niece of King Henry VIII. So she has royal blood in her, but she is not a king's child. She's a king's granddaughter, but not a king's daughter. She'll come to the throne on the 10th of July, 1553. She'll last nine days. Mary will put together an army with the support of Spain. They will march on the palace where she was being kept, Lady Jane Grey. She will be imprisoned in the Tower of London. She will be tried for treason, found guilty, and ordered to be executed by beheading. She knelt down at the chopping block, and she was allowed to say some last words. She acknowledged the fact that what she had done, in the eyes of the state at least, was unlawful. But nevertheless, she said, I am innocent. Not of having done something that was unlawful, but I'm innocent of any crime. Because the Protestant faith is the true faith. She then took the handkerchief and tied it around her own eyes. She had difficulty, however, finding her way to the chopping block at that point. She turned at one point to the executioner and she said, you won't strike me down before my head is on the block. And he said, no, ma'am, I won't. The Lord Lieutenant of the tower would eventually help her down to the chopping block and she would speak these final words. Tell me if they sound familiar to you. Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Those are the same words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Lady Jane Grey spoke those words, and the axe fell, and the queen of nine days was no more. When she died, Mary entered the capital to great acclaim. Everybody admitted that she was the sovereign by right. So Lady Jane Grey was not accepted. Mary comes to the throne. She's going to reign for five brief years. First thing she has to do is get a husband, which she does. She marries Philip II of Spain, who is the son of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the nephew of her mother. So we're keeping it all in the family. 
Mary's going to come to the throne. Now, that's an interesting marriage because he doesn't speak any English and she doesn't speak any Spanish. So they have to communicate by means of French and Latin. He spends the bulk of the marriage in Spain. He's got responsibilities over there. But he will make visits to England, conjugal visits to England. That's the point. She has to produce an heir. But Mary is, as I said, a devout Roman Catholic. She's grieved by what her father had done to her mother. She is serious about the Catholic faith. Philip was particularly serious about the Catholic faith. He was a very devout Roman Catholic. When he became king of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, he felt that his primary job was to defend Spain against the Ottomans on the one hand and the Protestant reformers on the other. So this is a power couple. And they intend to bring the realm of England back to Catholicism. Understand that during the reign of Henry VIII, all of England was excommunicated. Not just the king, everybody. So she wants to bring all of these people whose souls are in immortal danger back into line. During her reign, and she's called Bloody Mary by the Protestant reformers, a number of things will happen. Brief reign, five years, 300 heretics, as she called them, would be put to death. By heretics, she means Protestants. Burned at the stake, hanged, drawn and quartered, you name it. 300 heretics put to death. 55 of those are women. Four of them are children. 100 of them are priests. Four bishops. And one archbishop all put to death during the reign of Mary for what she considers to be treason against the state. Among them is this man, Nicholas Ridley. He is the Bishop of London and one of the chief architects of the Book of Common Prayer along with Thomas Cranmer. He is ordered to be put to death. The Bishop of London, that's the third-ranking prelate in the Church of England. You have the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York, and the third-ranking prelate in the church in England is the Bishop of London. She orders that he be put to death because of the work that he did on the Book of Common Prayer. Here's what Nicholas Ridley had to say when he was told that he was being condemned to death. He said, So long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Jesus Christ and his known truth. God's will be done in me. I commit our cause to Almighty God who will indifferently judge all. Now, what did that last phrase mean, indifferently judge all? He meant the queen. God is going to judge all, the high and the low. Another one of the bishops that was ordered to be condemned was this man, Hugh Latimer. He was Bishop of Worcester. He had also been one of the primary movers in terms of reformation in England. When he was told that he was condemned to death, he said, there is nothing hid, but it shall be opened. Both of these men would be led off in Oxford where they had been scholars. They would be tied back to back against the stake and a fire would be lit. They were to be burned alive as an example to any other Heretics. 
But Hugh Latimer, the older man, cried out above the crackling flames to his companion, Nicholas Ridley, said, Take heart, Master Ridley. Take heart. For we shall this day... Now remember, they're being burned alive. We shall this day light a fire under England as I trust shall never be put out. And if you go to England today and to Oxford, you can see the actual place where these men were martyred, right there in the middle of a traffic circle today. But they gave their lives for the Protestant cause and for what they believed to be the revealed truth of God's word. But Mary was not done. She not only laid her hands on the third ranking prelate in the Church of England, she laid her hands on Thomas Cranmer, who by this point was an old man. And you know, there are a lot of terrible ways to die, but burning alive has got to be one of the worst. And he had been forced to watch as Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer had been condemned to death and burned. And when the queen ordered him to recant his faith, in a moment of weakness, he signed the recantation. She ordered that he be put to death anyway. But he was assured that his immortal soul would be saved. He was taken to the very same spot where Latimer and Ridley had been martyred a year before. He was ordered to be burned alive. His hands were tied behind his back, but somehow the old man managed to get his right hand free, the hand with which he had signed the recantation. And he cried out at the top of his lungs, let the hand that denied Christ burn first. And he lowered it down into the flames until it was completely consumed. Now when that happened... The whole country was moved. Because these people were not dying like cowards. They were not even launching back at the, at the queen. They weren't cursing her. What they saw in the death of Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, and all of those others were people who were willing, if necessary, to give their lives for the faith. To do it joyfully. And without bitterness. In other words, what they saw in the death of these men was something very much akin to the death of Jesus. Who, though he was reviled and hated, did not revile. They saw something very similar to the first martyr, Stephen, a man who prayed for his enemies, men who seemed to have caught that beatific vision of Christ seated there in majesty. And the tide began to turn against Mary. She never produced an heir. She had a number of false pregnancies. She gained weight. She stopped menstruating. Everybody was hopeful that, my goodness, the queen is going to produce an heir. And she never did. And she died after about five years, brokenhearted on the throne of England. Probably died of ovarian cancer is what most scholars believe. And when she died, her half-sister comes to the throne. If you can keep track of all of these people, by the way. 
Henry, we said, had a number of heirs. First daughter, Mary by Catherine of Aragon. We've talked about her Bloody Mary. He had a male heir by his third wife, Jane Seymour, Edward VI. He'd had a second child, a girl as well, by his second wife, Anne Boleyn. And that woman's name is Elizabeth. Probably considered by most scholars to be the greatest sovereign in the history of England. Elizabeth I. I always thought it ironic that Henry was always concerned that no woman could possibly sit on the throne and govern effectively, and the greatest sovereign in the history of the nation was a woman, Elizabeth I. She lived from 1533 to 1603. She lived a good long life, comparatively speaking. She reigned from 1558 to 1603. She was a Protestant, unlike her half-sister Mary. Remember, she's the child of Anne Boleyn. Henry had sought the annulment so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. So she's the half-sister of Mary, half-sister of Edward, but she is a Protestant. But she is tired of all the bloodshed, all of the warfare, and all of the fighting over religion. When someone asked her what was her view on the Eucharist, is this the flesh and blood of Christ as her sister Mary believed, or is this a pure memorial as her brother Edward believed? Which one is it? This is what the queen said. Brilliant little piece of poetry. She said, "'Twas God the word that spake it. He took the bread and break it, and what the word did make it, that I believe and take it. <laughs> and that was her answer to the whole question of what is Holy Communion? "'Twas God the word that spake it. He took the bread and brake it. And what the word did make it, that I believe and take it. So Elizabeth I is going to come to the throne. And we're going to see things once again take a dramatic shift. This will become known as the Elizabethan Settlement in 1559. But you'll have to come back next week to hear about it. So...